Sunday night, and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. Uh, I've said it before, but it's just as important to remind people this week as it was two weeks back. This is the show for folks who know that Superman arrived in the U.S. as an unaccompanied minor, and that when Supergirl joined him, that was another wonderful example of family migration, which is really one of the most common ways that anybody has come into this country. Um, and I'm your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. Uh, just a quick reminder again that this Saturday we have nationwide Families Belong Together rallies happening in just about every place in the country. Uh, go up and look up Families Belong Together online. And unless you live in the blue area of the moon or perhaps somewhere in the phantom zone, there is going to be a rally somewhere near you. Um, so I hope to see everybody out on Saturday really supporting the values that we've all grown up reading uh, if you pay any attention to the stories context that we've been reading our whole lives. So speaking of comics that have important things to share, I have a really exciting guest joining us tonight. Um, Tanika Stotts is a queer little tumbleweed that found herself back in the home embrace of the desert known as Los Angeles. After spending quite a few years as a spoken word artist, Tanika's focus shifted to comics, a medium full of collaboration and, and imagination. Uh, she writes the webcomic Full Circle, which was recently nominated for a 2018 Louis McDuffie Award for Diversity, Love Circuits, as well as the Eisner-nominated webcomic Deja Brew. Along the way, Tanika has edited and self-published a few award-winning comics anthologies, including the Lambda Literary 2016 winner for Best Anthology, Beyond the Queer Sci-Fi and Fantasy Comic Anthology, and the 2017 Ignatz winner for Outstanding Anthology, and is now a 2018 Eisner nominee for Best Anthology for Elements, a Fire Comic Anthology by Creators of Color, um, put out by Beyond Press, which I believe is Tanika's own uh, pu uh, publishing outlet. Isn't that right? I am one-third of uh, Beyond Press, uh, aside Excellent. from Spay R. Monster and Shingen Core. Awesome. Did, did I butcher your name? No, no, you did not. Woohoo! Excellent. Okay, so we're here. We're getting down to it. This is great. Um, so I first became aware of your work. Uh, I feel like I maybe heard something about the Kickstarter a, a couple of years ago, but um, it really was Danny at Forbidden Planet who just right up oh. put the anthology in my hands and said that I needed to read it. And I took a look and uh, I was completely on board with this project. Um, it Bless definitely. Danny. I miss Danny. <laughs> yeah, Danny is amazing. Danny is like my comics dealer, Danny and Juliet Forbidden Planet. And I, one of these days, I hope I can get them on the show to to share their wisdom. But um, but this anthology initially came out on Kickstarter, and um, I, I'd love to hear a bit about the story behind the first, the very first anthology coming coming into existence beyond the queer sci sci-fi and fantasy comics anthology. No problem. Um, so what originally had happened, uh, I started out as just a contributor, actually. Uh, I was in the submission pool like everyone else. Uh, I happened to see Spay's tweet, which said that there was a need for these comics to exist, and they were going to make it exist. And it was something that I immediately clamored towards because it's something I've always wanted to see exist since I was a little kid. So immediately dove in, um, tapped my good friend at the time and also full circle artist, uh, Christiane Goudreau, and asked her to do a story with me. Uh, little did I know uh, that 
this story would be my entryway into not only creating something that I love, but physically watching it manifest uh, as luck would have it or, you know, just life. Uh, the original editor uh, needed to move on, which was no big deal. Uh, however, the project seemed to be in a bit of mishap after this, after this leaving. So I've had a bit of publishing experience thanks to my time in the spoken world, spoken word industry. And uh, oh. I stepped up and said, Hey, uh, do you mind if I help out? And Spay was very receptive and very amazing and believed in me when I was making cockamamie proposals such as how about we go to Kickstarter with this book um, because we wanted to one enable that payment actually happen to everyone who was a participant and two we wanted to see it look gorgeous and the only way we could do that is with a budget so I set forth with what I knew were the tools available and we went from there and you guys, this is just one of those smash hit Kickstarters from from what I know um, in the comics world that I feel like has inspired a million other uh, people to just get their act together and start one as well. It's kind of amazing. Um, I'm going to say that we were inspired by other people as well. Um, mm-hmm. Anthologies had saw a resurgence thanks to um, C. Spike Trotman. Um, yeah. <laughs> Spike of Iron Circus Comics. Uh, Smut Peddler is something that I have near and dear in my heart and on my shelves. And not only that, but the payment model, which Spike pioneered, was like the greatest thing to finally happen to independent comics because it was no longer just, hey, let's jam session and make a book on my couch and nobody gets paid for it, but you'll get like 20 copies. Now, while that's not a bad thing, (laughs) not at all. Um, sometimes if you're going a little bit bigger and bolder, and maybe if you're even using third-party distribution from other publishers, you should pay people who are involved in that project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's really no excuse. Um, so because it was so important to make sure that people were paid and that they received free books and that things were going to happen smoothly, uh, we set the budget at 20000 Uh, which was actually a factual budget. (laughs) There are some (laughs) fake budgets sometimes that float around, but uh, was our budget. And we then made, I think, 80,000. So we greatly exceeded our budget, which gave us the opportunity to not only pay bonuses, bonus page rates to our, our, our artists and our writers and our creators that were in the book, but also enabled us to make one beautiful book because nothing Mm. like foil on the cover makes it sing and shine a little more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the print quality is just really great too. Thank you. We have a um, non-binary print sourcer. (laughs) Oh, you'll have to share that with folks in case they're also looking for similar assistance because that's fabulous. I, um, so uh, how did you start making comics yourself? You started doing web comics. Yeah. I started doing webcomics well back into the day. Um, I actually did a a manga webcomic, first and foremost, uh, with, um, unfortunately, a person who had an issue with my sexuality eventually, and therefore led to the breakup of that first comic. Good God. Yeah. Um, So after that, I decided I'm never doing that again. Uh, So I actually partnered up with my 
my wife of like 10 years, um, we did a comic together called Grand Grimoire, and that is now permanently on hiatus. Kill your darlings. Um, mm. <laughs> and then we moved, I moved on to Full Circle, uh, which is where I've been uh, for the past four and a half years, five and a half, possibly. And then uh, I've also been working on Love Circuits, which has been on hiatus for a while, but uh, I started that up like three years later with Genway Revuelta, and she's been a godsend. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm not from like the generation of people who really started reading web comics. It's still something that I sort of dip my toe in to check out, and I don't really have a sense of, you know, how does that community find each other? Um, and it's, it's interesting because there also, I feel like there's particular styles of art that I associate with it because it's always been a very obviously digital first kind of platform. How, how did you learn to write comics? How did you guys learn to make comics together? Um, so two things. <laughs> Google <laughs> is my very good friend uh, for looking up comic scripts uh, specifically. Not even going to lie. I did not go to college for comics. <laughs> In <laughs> fact, um, I didn't go to college for anything near what I'm doing right now. I mean, that's uh, pretty standard, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty standard for the greatest piece of paper on the planet. Um, instead, what I ended up doing was not only mixing what I had learned and loved from uh, a few screenwriters who were friends of mine and just the knowledge uh, that it was accessible to me. I also went to the library and checked out a book on script writing um, and began my process of kind of asking my friends if this was right, uh, who had a bit more experience than me, had done it professionally. And their feedback was, this is point on. In fact, sometimes it was better than what they had seen before. So I kept going with that. Um, I also have a very amazing mentor in my life by the name of Jim Gibbons. Uh, he is an ex-editor of Dark Horse Comics, has more Eisners than I've ever seen in someone's house. And he was actually my editor for Deja Brew, which was nominated for an Eisner. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I guess my question also was sort of like, what made you want to begin writing in comics as a medium and attracted you to it in the first place? Okay, I'm not going to lie. Prose gets really boring. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a behemoth sometimes, and tackling it wasn't my strong suit. I feel much stronger now as a writer than I did then. Uh, at that time, I felt I had such a really good conversation and collaboration with the people that I was working with that making comics was uh, somewhat easier. Uh, you still have a lot of writing and work to do to manifest out a comic, but I enjoyed the process and the people. <laughs> it was like making two dreams come true at once because there's so much writing in comics that sometimes people miss. And there's so much amazing art in comics that sometimes people miss. So I feel oh boy, if you yeah. merge them together, hopefully they don't miss anything. <laughs> Yeah, what, we, what were the sort of comics influences that, you, that influenced you um, as, as a writer? Uh, to me, actually, there weren't a lot of influences in Western civilization. Uh, mm -hmm. I go a little bit further over. Uh, I grew up reading a lot of manga. Um, I enjoyed reading Sailor Moon. I enjoyed reading a lot of Clamp. I enjoyed reading a lot of queer, diverse comics that came out of a different country, 
which um, it felt very strange that they were so advanced in exploring so many sexualities. Uh, may it be just doujinshi or may it be actual tanks that you could buy. Um, it was something for me to just kind of sink my teeth into. And I really felt myself not relatable completely to the characters, but definitely in love with all of them. Hmm. Were there particular series that you would want to shout out for us to think about? I, I know a lot of us are not big manga experts, but I certainly respect it greatly. Uh, Brett and I always, I always have a joke that whenever we're at Comic-Con, if there's somebody who has an amazing costume and we have no idea what in God's name they're dressed <laughs> as, it's absolutely from a manga. We're like, that looks amazing. I don't know who you are. It must be a manga. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I'm actually going to shout out a light novel, um, meaning that it's it's prose with illustrations. Um, mm. My favorite uh, my favorite series is actually called Kino no Tabi, uh, aka Kino's Journey in the U.S. Uh, it mm. was licensed and adapted by Tokyo Pop way back in the day, and as you would guess it, they fudged up the book. <laughs> so I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, they lost the license, I believe, and uh, no more was ever released. And even though certain publishers like Kodansha and stuff like that are currently in the U.S., I've never seen further information about this book ever being released again. <laughs> it's a sadness, but uh, I have fan translations, so I have read all of the series, and I collect the art books, and I'm a big fan of the creator. Was that a series that had um, LGBTQ themes at all? Yes and no. <laughs> so I say yes because they were very on the borderline of themes mm. for LGBTQ. But Kino themselves, I identified for me as non-binary at the time um, because they were someone who hid their gender and decided to go on this journey, uh, not because they wanted to at first, but because they needed to to escape where they currently lived. And it was this, that was the relatable part of the story for me um, yeah. about how I felt in my earlier days when I was kind of escaping out and uh, leaving behind what I thought was family and what I thought I had started. Well, that definitely connects to the themes in, you know, beyond anthology. Certainly, I, I, one of the things that I was super excited about is I feel like a lot of the queer comics I'd been handed over the years weren't genre. They weren't sci-fi or fantasy. They were stuff that I just was less interested in. Um, mm -hmm. So having something that was, yes, this is 100% sci-fi and fantasy. Um, you know, these are not the only genres I'm into, but there's certainly some of them. Uh, what was the attraction for you um, in terms of making your own work be in, in that space? So <laughs> I am deeply, deeply, deeply a Star Trek and Star Wars fan. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm talking like old school Star Trek because Michelle Nichols is like amazing. And for me, that was a lot of representation while I was coming, growing up. And not only that, but just these genres are science fiction and fantasy, and yet there are no black people <laughs> yeah. anywhere. Um, it's like, wow, uh, there are dragons, but no people of color. This makes no sense to me. So with that in mind, uh, I felt more compelled than ever to not only tell stories that I wanted to tell unabashedly, unapologetically, and just going forward 
with my own ideas of what a story is, uh, I found that they, those thoughts were embraced by many other people who felt the same exact way. And not only is my queer identity mixed in, uh, so is my, you know, racial identity. <laughs> it's something yeah. that I cannot remove from myself. It's not something that I can either change from myself. It is just myself. So with that in mind, making that space inclusive for many other people who feel the same way was very imperative, especially as I saw how Beyond had taken off. Uh, I wanted to mimic the same when I did Elements. And I feel like I did it successfully. Yeah, definitely. I I feel like a lot of people's starter comics often are really autobiographical, which is also generally why a lot of people don't want to read them. Um, mm. So it was exciting to see. I think I think a lot of the people who are in the anthologies, these are some of their earlier works. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And yes. so to see them starting just from from the, even from the very beginning, doing stuff that's really imaginative and exciting. Um, is really a great indicator of things to come. Yes. Um, we only had one story that was kind of lopped in from the middle of a comic that was ongoing, which was um, Valley of the Silk Sky by Dylan Edwards. Um, and then two of the comics that were in there became their own separate web comics after um, mm-hmm. Families and Familiar Creatures, I believe. Sorry if I'm butchering that. But by Reed Black. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oh, there's another story actually. Uh, oh, Human Star by Blue Delaconte. Yes. Uh That featured also uh, characters from the current series. So having these things exist, being able to promote and uplift spaces that were already being made, spaces that were already being proudly taken up, um, but also being able to give them another kind of you know pulse uh, was very very amazing. Um. So how did you guys go about sort of going and getting submissions? I, I, you know, I, you were not maybe part of the earliest process for the first book, but you're certainly right in the midst of it for the second one. And like, what is the process for finding collaborators and submissions to anthologies like these? So the amazing part is I started a hashtag actually for the second book, um, which is beyond collab. Uh, the first book was just submissions via email. Uh, when I took over for the second book, it was submissions via Google Forms. Google Forms hmm. are your friends. <laughs> Use them, abuse them, they are there. Uh, it made the process a bit more streamlined. And by putting the hashtag also in the Google Form and also with our tweets and our promotional, it actually helped people find one another who were interested because not all writers need artists and not all writer or artists not need all artists, writers yeah. but but sometimes people are looking for those and magic happens because we've seen a lot of of uh teams that have come from that hashtag that have continued on with their own projects even if they didn't get into beyond oh that's really good i mean i you know i definitely i, I when i when i hear sort of folks who are just trying to start out making comics mm-hmm everybody's always most stuck on trying to find artists to collaborate with because mm-hmm. basically everybody thinks they can write whether or not that's true. They're at least physically, <laughs> physically capable of doing so. Um, whereas it's pretty clear physically if someone is capable of literally drawing representative figures or not. Um, 
And so there's this challenge of, you know, I think I have a story to tell. How do I find an artist who isn't already doing any other things, you know, um, who, who will collect, who wants to share my story because oftentimes they have their own ideas. Exactly. Artists will have their own stories that they want to tell and they might want to prioritize that over work, especially if you're not paying them a lot. And so that's yes. really a stumbling block for a great number of people. And I, I have thoughts about that, but your thoughts are a lot more informed than mine. So I'd love to hear <laughs> what you think uh, folks should be considering if they're trying to, if they're a writer who's trying to connect with an artist and don't have a huge amount of money to offer, um, et cetera. Well, there are many ways to go about it. Um, quickest and shortest way of saying it is save up. <laughs> and I and I do mean that uh, because nobody does anything for free. The same for the writer. Uh, they mm-hmm. shouldn't dismiss or discount themselves just because uh, they're writing something. Uh, there's still a page rate for writing. I make one. Everyone makes one in comics. So you should make one too and make that in consideration. If you can't payroll the whole project because that's $10,000, consider something more like a Kickstarter where you take and you write the beginning of the series, you script it all out, you get a page rate that you settle on with an artist who chooses to do the project, you pay them to do about mm, three or five pages, and then you plop those on Kickstarter, you tell your factual story of I would like to see this exist and so would this artist this is how much we need to make to make it exist and this is how much pays the artist and this is how much prints the books and then we'll send you a book a floppy or what have you a zine uh, when this is all done and you'd be surprised a lot of people have made their first time projects actually happen through Kickstarter that's awesome and I also just really think it's important to also just figure out like how are you building community with artists that you'd want to work with? How do you uh, figure out like who you're going to, who who would be a good partner for you? Who actually make friends, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) not Mm -hmm. just work friends, but actual friends. Um, I find that this community is most giving and very charitable. It's very beautiful, but what some people forget or neglect is that, there's actual human quality to this work. And if you're going to have that communication, making a friend and then actually being a friend are two separate things. <laughs> and and it's good to practice both, uh, especially if you're going into an endeavor with someone where you would most likely be working together for a year to three years to maybe five, uh, knowing one another, knowing one another's routines, jobs, all sorts of information, but on a personal basis where you're, where business is in the background, but, but there's actual relationship in the foreground. I feel like that usually makes the best collaborations and actually usually makes the best comics because therefore you're able to get out feelings and emotions and talk about things and make sure that one or the other is satisfied with the direction that the project is heading in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so important. Um, so uh, I haven't really talked yet about uh, your other project, which is Elements. Do you, you want to sort of give us a picture about uh, how that came to be and what, and what your goals are with it? Uh, yeah, uh, Elements Fire is my follow-up to Beyond uh, because I did not want to 
Go It Alone. I also co-edited with Shingen Kaur, uh, who's a really great friend of mine, Sawdust Bear on Twitter. Uh, what happened was I saw this amazing rush and this need to support queer comics creators, and I thought, I bet you I could do this with creators of color. And not only that, queer creators of color, mm-hmm. because we don't really have representation in the comics world And it's always a continual ask on Twitter of, do you know any creators of color that would be interested in this project? POC list me here. And I was really getting agitated that people weren't remembering our names or even giving an iota of care beyond having the same names repeated that were like three people who were already in the industry. Yeah, and who were probably booked wall to wall and like we're not going (laughs) to... going to drop everything and work on whomever's project it was that was like below their status basically like yeah so it was just it was really sad and pathetic in my opinion because here we are in this industry of of life and imagination and cartoons and these amazing amazing people were just being completely ignored and overlooked some of them have been my friends since I've been in comics And some of them I just met through this comic. So for me, it was really important and vital not only to make this space, but to make people aware of who was in this space and who was not about to budge from this space. Because once we're here, we're just not leaving. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, truly, one of the things that just drives me batty is people asking, do you know of anybody who as if there haven't already been a lot of conversations, as if there isn't already a database and, you know, sometimes there are more narrow cast specific questions. Like if somebody mm-hmm. said, you know, hey, Ilana, do you know queer writer of color who's focused on telling war stories? Because mm-hmm. I'm not particularly invested in those. I would possibly say, I bet someone is. I don't know who. I probably know someone who does know. So I kind of am like, you know, if the Venn diagram of specifically is like narrow enough, I see a I, yes. me, and you could tell me I'm wrong or something like that. I feel like there could be like, Hey, do you know someone with this particular specialty? But like the general, the sort of general like creators of color at all, or like queer people at all is just mind blowing yes. to me. It really is. And a lot of people just take that for granted. I feel um, they just kind of think of us as only, how we've been represented in comics as sidekicks and as token characters and not as main characters who are leading their own stories. And therefore uh, they have this mindset that we're also going to continue helping them with their story the whole time when we have our own to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. So for a while there, there was this great um, proliferation of POC being utilized, but only telling whitewashed narratives of their own stories and it was very sad and it was very depressing and it was just heart-wrenching to watch my brothers and sisters be moved into these positions and folks of all creed just being used and not even still given a chance afterwards to tell their own stories that was the worst part i mean that's definitely a product of I mean, the capitalist system, right? Like that you're going to get paid to do somebody else's work rather than get funded or sponsored to create your own vision. Um, And, you know, there really, there aren't sort of the way like independent filmmakers 
in sort of the more art film space or do mm-hmm. things like you apply for a grant and that whole system is a complete nightmare. But there isn't anything really like that in comics where you could say, actually, I have this vision and I'm completely ca- capable of doing this, but I don't have what I don't have is, is the money to pay until this book is published. And then once it's published, everyone will buy it and we're good. So, you know, like Kickstarter has kind of been filling in the funding gap for other kinds of, for, you know, for, for voices that weren't getting, that weren't getting image books, basically, or weren't getting. Notoriety of any shape or form. Yeah. 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 It, it literally has from down from Jamila's wash day to, um, Ngozi's check please <laughs> I mean Spikes <laughs> uh, Templar Arizona there's so many books that are blessed and thanks to Kickstarter and it's just it's been our way of not only saying yes we're here and we can prove our talent it's also been a way to say yes we're here and we also don't need you anymore <laughs> And, you know, when we know how bad the page rates are for some of the publishers, you, mm-hmm. you really are sort of putting yourself at in the possibility to, to do more and better, I guess. It's not like people are getting health insurance for the publishers anyway, right? That is um, absolutely correct. <laughs> you know, so. It's sad and pathetic and depressing um, that they want you to abuse and use your arm to draft these things for them that they sell either in monthly serial floppies or in a whole 200 page graphic novel that they want done in six months it's asinine and I'm very against it Um, I'm working in a different industry right now but seeing how it works in relation to seeing how comics works we have so much work still to do because comics is still so behind in the way that it treats people, kind of like a revolving door. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but a revolving door where they just want hit smash successes from the same voices uh, and never actually invest in the other voices that are clearly more poignant, louder, and also more eloquent. Absolutely. And some of these folks are just tired as hell. I mean, mm-hmm. and they can go through cycles. I mean, I'm not going to, say specifically, but like there's a comics writer who I adore who just had a run for a few years where their stuff wasn't very good. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that they're getting some good stuff up now. Like things can come in and out, but you know, they had a brand and I kept being like, well, I hope they're, they come back to form sometime soon. But in the meantime, I'm going to be really looking at new writers, you know, um, yeah. because someone has done brilliant work before. It doesn't always mean that they're in that moment. That they're right infallible. Now. That they're not going to do something that's just gratuitous to their own needs uh, because Mm -hmm. of their mental state or because of their physical state or anything that might be going on in their life at the time. No, I totally understand that. You know, and it's not people can splash a comeback. It's not always, you know, but but people aren't given a chance in the first place and are, you know, sort of assumed that they can or can't handle certain kinds of storylines or themes. I mean, again, that's why I think it's so cool that you guys are really doing genre fiction here because that, I mean, the kinds of stories that are in here are definitely also different from the kinds of tones that you get from, let's specifically say like the big two publishers. Um, Although what I think is most distinct is that the art, like the art is not 
the artists from a different, completely, completely different artistic styles, right. Than like mm-hmm. from mainstream comic styles. And they're looking from, but it's also not like I look at the, at the I don't look at the books and say, Oh, this is all taken from manga. Like it's not that either. Yes. So it's, oh, it's, a, it's, it's a different, I feel like there's a sort of visual grammar of web comics and, mm-hmm. and of people who came up making art. And I know you're not, you know, you're not an illustrator yourself. You're a writer, but <laughs> as an editor, you've seen a lot. I feel like there's a, it, it, there is sort of a, a web comic style and it's mm-hmm. making a, um, it's being translated into, to print now uh, yes. through anthologies like this and through some of the smaller publishers too. Well, there's more freedom uh, within indie comics, web comics in general. Um, as far as who your editor is, how they believe in you and your, your pretty much how you're going to tell a story. Um, and then there's super houses, uh, like the big two, which have a guidebook and a style guide <laughs> and a bunch of other guides that make you want to continue pumping out the same thing they've been pumping out since they were indoctrinated or <laughs> pretty much since those styles have been formed in-house and it's an in-house style and that's all mm-hmm. they want to see and when you do break the in-house mold a little bit like say lauren foster or anyone um you know they like it because it sells books <laughs> they, don't, they yeah. don't like it because it's something that appeals to them they like it because they're making money from it um mm-hmm. from independent comics you don't usually run into that wall uh while money is really nice and can actually afford us some things and maybe we can pay a bill or two, uh, it's usually based on what your heart is and your interpretation for the story. And it's a lot of mix of fans from, um, from even Japan, but like fans of manga to fans of Western hits that grew up reading a few more slave labor graphics before the bad turn happened comics. And, (laughs) People who pretty much found their own style in the punk scene or found it in the kind of like girl fluff shoujo scene that existed in the U.S. uh, when OEL was still a big thing and you had Tokyo Pop doing like Rising Stars of Manga, so which was terrible, by the way, but um Or like animation. Uh, I mean, I look at, I'm looking at the Of Families and Other Magical Objects story that Reed Black did in the original Beyond, which I'm a big fan of. And I see a lot from Western animation, right? Yes. Including some things that I would connect with um, with things like the Fairly Odd Parents, that cartoon. Yes. Um, And Leia Decker. Like his his work is like a very good influence to read. You read a very like, you read a vast amount of influences in work because we're not just these stagnant creatures that only surround ourselves with the same five faces and pretend like that's the, that's the, that's the zenith of comics. That's it. That's me. I've peaked. Um, Instead we go out and we source so many things, not just from our own realities and lives, but also from people who tell stories that deeply, deeply nettle their way into our hearts. What's been the most challenging part of doing this work for you as an editor creatively? I don't mean in terms of the logistics or money or whatever, but like from, you know, being an editor is creative work. We decisions about what you publish, et cetera. If there's feedback that you're giving your creative teams, like what are some of the big challenges you've had create, creatively doing this? Uh, my biggest creative challenge I feel is, and I'm going to start at the beginning, is my rejections. 
Mm. Um, it's usually probably one of the hardest days that I have and I need to like go away from the computer and take a break because just because you submit it and you didn't get in doesn't mean that your story's not good. Uh, and in fact, uh, we tell people when their stories are really good and they should go ahead and do this on their own. And sometimes they're so disheartened by the process that they don't do anything. And that's kind of like one of the big kickers in the butt. Cause I'm like, yes, I know our anthology exists, but there's so many other things out there, or you could just make this exist when you already have this much passion and this much power and this much time invested into the story, keep going forward. But sometimes it doesn't pan out that way. And thus the story is lost. Um, my second biggest I'd say hit is sometimes when you're going through the creative process, you have to be the bad person, the bad guy. You have to know when to cut a story off because it's not going in the direction that you were foreseeing it going in the first place. And you need to pay a kill fee (laughs) for this story because it's not going to be cohesive with the rest of the volume. Some Mm. people are very, um, everybody's my friend. And if I invited you, that means you're in and, and they'll want to be very kumbaya about it, but I'm very factual about it. And that, that can rub people the wrong way. And I'm okay with that. I still <laughs> made a very successful comic anthology because I went with my gut and my editing powers. Yeah. I mean, so like what does make an anthology work for you? Like, like what are the, like, how do you make sure that the stories work together in the same volume, but you don't want it to all be too same, same, you know, like what is your philosophy to making an anthology? No repetitions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't like anything that's within the same um, genre uh, or, or theme. I should say theme actually. Um, I don't like anything that's too same, same. If I'm doing a science fiction and fantasy anthology, then I want 10 science fiction stories. I want 10 fantasy stories. And I want them to be the tops and I want to weave them together uh, by reading all the submissions and seeing how they flow so that I have what I consider my starter and my anchor. Um, Mostly in slam poetry teams, when you do team battles, you have someone who goes up and kind of starts an invocation that's inviting the audience to get ready for whatever madness this team is about to throw at them. It's softer. Sometimes it's not the heaviest piece. Um, you want to save the best for last. So you have a very good anchor, something that's clear, that's harsh. You know what the audience reaction is like so far already. So now you want to punch it. You want to go as hard as you can to make an impact. So the book is kind of like, at the end of the day, a mixtape. <laughs> you got, you have your, your, your nice inch intro song, and then you have your your, your good ballads, and then you have a climax, and you have some more ballads and a climax, and then you have something that's very much so like a dessert, always on the mind. It's the last part that the person goes through. So you settle out, and there you go. I like that metaphor. Um, I'm definitely of a generation that recognizes the art of the mixtape making. <laughs> yes. Mixtape was a fine, fine art. And if you were doing it still with a radio and you were tuned into an FM, it was all oh about boy. the timing. <laughs> all about the timing, right? Through the VJ oh, yeah. shuts the hell up. 
I mean, there there are like multiple songs by Bow Wow Wow back in the '80s about how to properly record off the radio for the purposes of making mixtapes. Although uh, <laughs> that was a little bit before my time as a I was I was I was pretty young back then is all I'm saying but yeah I was yeah. too I was only ooh, what I was like two and eighty two you were really young <laughs> yeah yeah oh, two we're and eighty four we're we're, we're 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 close to the same age I'm not I'm not surprised oh, okay not surprised yeah, at no. all um so uh, looking at what you guys have done so far you know really as anthology creators are you interested in doing making some of your own web comics into book published format. Is that something that you're looking towards or are you looking to do more anthologies? Um, right now, as of this moment, I only have one other anthology planned, uh, which will then foresee me taking probably a break for a little bit. Uh, because in that time I am taking on the endeavor of doing my own graphic novels, <laughs> which Woo-hoo. I'm currently paying creators to work on with me. And I'm very excited to finally be here and in this kind of situation where I can make these things exist and kind of manifest. Um, we'll go forward either with Kickstarter or we'll go forward with a publisher because I have an agent now and she's lovely um, and she pitches my stuff often and it gets very good feedback. So, so I'm, I'm excited to dive in, especially now that like Barnes and Nobles and libraries are like, Hey, let's have a graphic novel YA section now. Like, Hey, I yeah. got your number. <laughs> so are, are you, are you, are you looking at a particular one of the web comics that you've written being converted or starting something new? Uh, something completely new, actually. Um, currently working on two completely new comics right now uh, while juggling my full-time job and dabbling in anthology still. So oh, kind man. Of, it's kind of a circus over here. Um, but now that I'm back in California, it's an amazing place to be. And I have so much support here. And I have so many amazing creators that I want to support here. So I feel nothing but just a creative bloom in my brain right now. And it's just kind of hard to get it all out in one, in one go, but uh, it's getting there. Um, You know, what do you feel like as an, what do you feel like makes an anthology? uh, hmm, I mean, how to think about asking this, you know, when, when somebody buys an anthology, there's always a question of, you know, how much of this book, am I going to like, because it's going to be mm-hmm. by a range of people, many of whom you've probably mm-hmm. never heard of before. H- how does somebody make a decision about what anthologies they want to check out? Well, for every person, every person is different. Um, for me, uh, there's never going to be the perfect anthology for everyone because they're always going to have different tastes and I'm okay with that. I hope that what we served up is something that they find enjoyable, but it's not something that I feel they need to commit to. Uh, if they want to start a little bit simpler, there are samplers that they can go to instead. But <laughs> when you're investing in an anthology, I say pick it up and flip through. See if the art sings to you. If it doesn't, put it back down. Uh, if it does, read a little bit further and actually dive into a story and see how it's set up. Um, no anthology is absolutely perfect, and they shouldn't be. They should be speaking to a multitude of people uh, with different concerns, different viewpoints, different 
everything. So Mm -hmm. it's okay to dislike stories in an anthology. They're not for you specifically, hence why it's an anthology, and it's a pulp collection of stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an example that comes to mind most recently is I was rereading Twisted Romance, and um, I had Mm -hmm. skipped over the prose parts because I was just in a comics-only mode when they'd come out. So I finally read, like, Megan Cube's short story, and then I was like, oh, I I never would have read this if it hadn't been in this, and I'm totally on board for this, and now I'm excited that I checked her out. You know, like, the anthology can be a way for you to encounter work that you would not have encountered otherwise if it hadn't come back to something else. Exactly. And that's literally the best part about anthologies. We're not forcing it upon you, but we know that it's good. Otherwise, we wouldn't have put it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, is switching from doing web comics to doing for the printed page like a significant mm-hmm. challenge in terms of how you're conceptualizing? Obviously, for the artist, there's a huge layout difference. But for you as a writer, was there a big shift? Not really, to be completely honest. Uh, the way hmm. that I script uh, for web comics is the way that I script for comics, uh, printed comics. The only difference is my pacing. Um, I can go a bit slower in comics while I go a little bit faster in web comics because you're trying to keep people hooked per page that comes out per weekly or sometimes per monthly, depending on what kind of web comic it is. So you're mind goes to a different place as far as how you're feeding out the story versus a comic book. I have 200 odd pages to explain my entire story to you. So buckle up. (laughs) You know, uh, this being coming out month, I know that, no, I'm sorry, not coming out month, pride month. Good God. Coming out month is October. Um, I'm very tired. There's been a lot of pride events. Uh, It's okay. I I already came out. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, One of the things that I think is good for me to point out to folks is that if you read beyond, you're not going to have to read a billion and one coming out stories because it's not about that. It's yeah, <laughs> fancy that. We're not talking yeah. about sado stories or frigid characters. <laughs> or just like this is the same story about how he came out. It's about different, completely different characters and different points in their life and different journeys and not repetition of a really – there's like, you know, I've said before, but like, there's nothing wrong with coming out stories, but for too long, that was like the only thing um, that people were really talking about. The beautiful story about the story I got to work on in Beyond is a royal affair, which is between mm-hmm. a non-binary monarch and a space pirate princess. <laughs> um, the best part about that story is my artist came out after finishing that comic because they felt more comfortable in their queerness and in their sexuality to make that change. And she just actually got married. Um, <laughs> happy wedding, Christiane and Donna. Um, they oh, just wow. got married and it was very beautiful because that allowed her to express herself in such a way that she knew who she was. So we didn't need to do a coming out story. We just needed to do a queer story. That's awesome. And that is a really super charming one. I'm a big fan of your space pirate. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Stealing hearts as well. Space pirates should. But ah, yes, um <laughs> I have a big I have a big love for those characters. And and you know, it's why I say kill your darlings, because sometimes you can't 
deep dive into an epic or make everything this long drawn out comic, but you can start small. You can be in anthologies. You can make many comics. You can do so many different things to be a comic creator. It's not just who hires you. It's what desires you to keep fueling forward and making art. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's always super inspiring. Um, you know, do you have suggestions for folks who want to submit to future anthologies? Not necessarily yes. edited by you, but just in general. <laughs> no worries. Um, so there is a comic ops. That's C-O-M-I-C-O-P-S dot Tumblr dot com. It is a paid opportunity for cartoonists that is uh, run by Sarah Winifred Cyril, uh cartoonist now in the great land of Australia, uh, which she updates often with paid opportunities and paid work for cartoonists and writers. Hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just by me. It's by a slew of people. Um, and it's very wonderful. Uh, there's also just Twitter in general, uh, sometimes Tumblr, but most people don't want to touch that cesspool. So I just tell them to stick with uh, the known pages. <laughs> the known pages. Okay. Uh, so what are the other, are there any other um, recommendations you might want to give our readers for a particular, uh, you know, self-produced comics that are coming out or that have recently come out that people should be checking out? Uh, for options there, uh, I'm trying to think my brain's going a little bad because of all the heat today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, usually there are not only sources online, but I'm trying to think of independent sources. Uh, I'd say Kickstarter is... Yeah. yeah, I'm saying Kickstarter is kind of like one of the best sources because you just go to their web comics tab or go to their, even though it says web comics, it's for printed comics, mind you. Uh, if you go into their tag, you'll see so many creations that are going into book form and are something that you can hold in your hand if that's what you prefer over doing something digitally. Um, as far as creator tools, I know that there was a creator's resource that recently came out. Um, I am quickly Googling. See if I can find it. Yes, here we are. It is called creatorresource.com. It was launched as a resource for comic creators to not only um, make comics, create comics, but also to find other comics. And it is a creative resource for both artists, writers, colors, letters, and editors. Well, that's exciting. Um, well, I want to thank you again for joining us. If you have any other projects you want to give a shout out to, to our listeners to be on the lookout for, I know we'd love to hear that. Well, other than all the wonderful NDA stuff I have, uh, <laughs> I'm currently not allowed to working. talk about it yet. Yeah, no, I'll talk about that. I'm currently working on a new comic pitch called Kingmaker with Mildred Louie and Casual Hex with Rhea Martinez. Um, Ooh, I like I'm that looking, name. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to bringing both of them online and also into bookstores. So keep an eye out. 
Exciting, exciting. Is Casual Hex going to be a little more adult in uh, intentions yes. and audience? <laughs> it's completely adult. Excellent. Like, are we thinking like NC-17 or are we thinking R? Uh, so for the book, it'll be R. And then for the little mini comics we do, that'll be NC-17. Oh, interesting. So, and those are going to be like to promote the book to fundraise for it or something like that? That is correct. Yes. Oh, that's smart. Smart. You guys are such good marketing people and social media mavens. I, I, uh, I love it. <laughs> we got to rise really up, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm someone who does social media for, uh, for political campaigns and nonprofit okay. organizations like as my job. So I'm always keeping an eye on like, what are the creative ways people are using social media platforms to get out there. And I think that there's a lot of interesting alignment between folks in the comics and Kickstarter world to, and, 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 people trying to do other kinds of campaigns or other kinds of social change because this is what you're doing is social change too right yes but there's yes. different kinds so yes. well thank you again for joining me oh gosh thank that was you a loud, so much for having me a loud vehicle in my street which hopefully nobody heard and i apologize oh, for talking over it um so where can our listeners find your work online and uh, and keep up with your amazing career uh i'm located at www.tanikastats.com I'm also located on Twitter as Tanika Stotts, <laughs> and uh, I'm also on Instagram as Tanika Stotts. So uh, if you Google my name, I, all my stuff shows up. Excellent. T-A-N-E-K-S-T-O-T-T-S, indeed. Well, thank you again for joining us. I'm so excited we were able to make this happen. Um, it's just been on my list for a while and I like finally was like, we're doing it. We're going to do it. And hopefully she'll say yes when I invite <laughs> her on. So, so thanks again. And um, no, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate your time, Elena. I appreciate graphic policy. I really am appreciative. This has been awesome. Oh, thanks. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye. So uh, for our listeners um, next week, I am going to be offline. Uh, we're not going to be taping on the Monday. Um, might end up taping our coverage of um, Legion at some point near the end of the week. I know you've probably been wondering, when are you guys going to cover Legion? Well, probably sometime later in that week. Uh, and then on July 16th, I'm super excited. We're going to have Teeny Howard on the podcast. Teeny, who is going to be writing the Captain America annual, who is currently writing Assassinistas um, and is writing, um, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, Eugenic. I'm going to butcher the name of her new comic. Teeny Howard will be back. Teeny's amazing. Um, so again, uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. If you came into the episode late, that's cool because you can listen to the whole darn thing online. Um, it's at Graphic Policy Radio. Um, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You'll be able to download the episode from there and from our website, graphicpolicy.com, where we have new coverage of comics and the world around us uh, online every day. You can always find me on Twitter. Unfortunately, I can't seem to turn it off. Um, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn is my Twitter handle. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. Um, and again, yeah, graphicpolicy.com. We like to keep it geeky. And again, I hope to see you guys out on Saturday marching in solidarity with our community members and relatives who are 
being torn apart from their families right now. Um, if you ever wondered what you would do in the time of crisis, this is happening now. And you don't want to be that bystander in the background of the story that you wanted to shout out for not intervening. You want to be someone who's siding with the heroes and you want to be someone who's taking action. So do that. And I will talk to you soon. See you in the streets.